0: If Christmas is about anything, it's about a promise, a promised hope, a promised Messiah, a promised salvation. You might say Jesus was the expected one. Coming up, a fresh look at the expected one. We've got questions and answers that I think you'll really uh, link up with. We've got a devotional from Charlie Dyer, and of course, We'll spend some time right now untangling the headlines from the Middle East, all on this program we call The Land and the Book. Welcome. My name is John Gager. always proud and happy to be sitting down with Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host. Charlie, you all ready for Christmas, by the way? I am, John. We got all of our shopping
1: done. We got uh, We just have everything ready. In fact, our daughter's even coming in from London, so we're having a great time with her.
0: All right. That sounds like a great Christmas, and I know our listeners as well are looking forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus But right now, we're going to spend some time carefully looking at events that have unfolded this last week in the Middle East, with story number one being the nuclear talks between Iran and the West kind of limping along. Concern is growing in Israel that the United States might be willing to settle for any agreement just to be able to say it scored a diplomatic victory. What are Israel's main fears over such an agreement, and what might they do in response? Well,
1: Israel seems to have two main fears. The first is that should Iran be allowed to continue expanding its nuclear and missile programs, it will eventually develop nuclear weapons that can be launched on missiles. And should they reach that stage, Israel believes Iran will use those nuclear weapons to terrorize the Middle East and to try to destroy Israel itself. Now, Israel could retaliate with its own nuclear weapons, but that's not a concern to Iran. In their mind, a nuclear exchange might harm them, but it would destroy Israel. And theologically, they believe a worldwide conflagration is a necessary part of God's plan to prepare the way for the coming of the Mahdi, the Shiite Messiah. Israel's second fear is that the U.S.'s rush to secure a deal, any deal, signals America's desire to disengage from the Middle East. After long-term involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan, Israel sees the US trying to untangle itself from this region of the world to enable it to face China and Russia in the Pacific. Since the time of President Obama, US presidents, Democrat and Republican, have talked about a US pivot in that direction. Israel believes the US pullback will change the strategic balance of power in the region, offering greater influence to Russia, Iran, and Turkey. They're also concerned that in spite of assurances of a lasting security bond between the US and Israel, The phrase, out of sight, out of mind, will come into play. The U.S. could be less likely to support Israel with weapons and technology since it's pulled away from the region. Now, our decision not to speed up delivery of long-range refueling tankers just this week gave Israel the hint of what the future might hold. Our pullout from Afghanistan didn't help assure Israel that they could depend on long-term U.S. support should they be threatened. Now, in terms of what Israel might do in response, well, that's a lot more uncertain. Right now, they're doing everything they can to persuade the U.S. to take a hardline position with Iran and to commit to a military response should the Iranians back out of a nuclear deal. Uh, Israel also wants U.S. permission to continue their covert plans to stop Iran's progress toward amassing enough nuclear material for a bomb. And should that fail, Their backup plan would be to sabotage Iran's attempts to convert that uranium into nuclear weapons. But Israel has also stated it will launch an attack against Iran's nuclear facilities should Iran reach the point where Israel is convinced that's the only remaining option. I'm not sure if the U.S. or Iran believe them, but they ought to. Israel will do everything in their power to ensure that another holocaust not be allowed to take place.
0: Charlie, I'm always intrigued with this discussion of enriching uranium as if, as if somehow it's all sitting away in a locked room. And then, you know, maybe later when they get permission, they will enrich it. Isn't it already going on right now, 24 hours a day? Uh, it
1: is. And they're enriching some of it up to 60 percent purity right now. 90 uh, percent is weapons grade. And so it's only a matter of time until they reach that level.
0: Well, last week we talked about lone wolf terrorist attacks in Israel, but moving from the problem to possible solutions, what can Israel actually do to stop such attacks, or can they do much?
1: Well, you know, stopping attacks from lone individuals really isn't that easy. Uh, In many ways, it's similar to the school shootings we've experienced here in our country. Uh, We've seen, you know, sadly after the fact that there were early warning signs that Uh, Had individuals paid attention, it might've made a difference, but that just slipped between the cracks. So what can Israel do? Well, monitoring social media is a crucial first step. Just like here in the States, Palestinian youth are on social media, and prior to many attacks, the individuals post statements that telegraph their plans. Israel can also monitor sites that try to incite violence and work to take those sites offline. Uh, Lone wolf attacks are often copycat attacks where the individuals enticed to move forward where a previous attacker had been glorified. Now, a second step would be to increase surveillance and security. Uh, Beefing up security at checkpoints and other sites can discourage would-be attackers. Now, such security would also stop an attacker before he or she would be able to harm anyone. A failed attack with no victims apart from the attacker signals failure for other would-be attackers and can discourage them from trying to do the same thing. A third thing they might be able to do is greater cooperation uh, between them and the Palestinian Authority. Israel needs to be able to pass on actionable intelligence before an incident, and the Palestinian Authority needs to do what it can to stop an individual Mm -hmm. before the attack occurs. That's similar in our culture to school authorities and police and parents working together to intervene and stop an attack from happening in the first place. Uh, There is a fourth step, sadly, and that is to uh, increase the security barrier and make access into Israel even harder for Palestinians. Now, the building of the separation barrier almost stopped the weekly suicide bombings during the Second Intifada, though the cost to the Palestinians was high. Now, this should be a last step, but it's one that could become necessary if the Palestinian Authority isn't willing or able to deter such attacks. Now, thankfully, at least right now, the Palestinian Authority and Israel are cooperating, so it doesn't seem like that final step is necessary.
0: Current events from the Middle East. That's what we're looking at today on The Land and the Book with Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger with story number three, a cheating scandal at a beauty contest. No, we're not talking about the 70th annual Miss Universe contest held last weekend in southern Israel. We're talking about the camel beauty contest at the King Abdulaziz Festival for Camels in Saudi Arabia. What happened to create the scandal, Charlie? Yeah,
1: you know, the Miss Universe contest came off without a hint of scandal, but the same can't be said for this 40-day camel contest in Saudi Arabia. In fact, 43 camels vying to become Miss Camel were banned from the festival for cheating. So, you know, think, how does someone cheat at a camel beauty contest? Well, in many ways, just like they do in human beauty contests, the camels disqualified from the event were removed for trying to artificially modify the beauty of the beasts. Uh, Some camels had Botox injected into their lips to make the (laughs) lips appear larger and more plump. Others had gel implants to increase the size of their humps and hormone injections to change their physical appearance. Still others had cosmetic ear reduction surgery. Uh, Desirable camel features include elegant ears, large noses, and a long neck and legs. So that's what they were doing. Now, not surprisingly, the root cause for it all was money. Uh, The grand prize in this Camel Beauty Contest is a whopping $66 million. Uh, The owners from Saudi Arabia, the Gulf States, Russia, France, and even the U.S. entered camels in this year's competition, and the cheaters were spotted after a visual inspection, followed by x-rays, ultrasound tests, and even genetic analysis. Mm. I love it, John. Jesus said, it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven but he didn't speak about camels receiving Botox injections to make their owners rich men.
0: I, I, I don't even know how to comment, Charlie. I'll I just I'll, <laughs> I'll refrain. Story number four, archaeologists announced the discovery of a second synagogue at the New Testament site of Magdala, just north of Tiberias on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Charlie, we were just there. What does this discovery tell us about this first century town, and where is it in relation to the existing synagogue that we see?
1: Yeah, you know, I was going to say this showed that they had denominational rifts just like we do today, but that's probably (laughs) reading too much into the discovery. But it is a significant discovery since an assumption has always been that each town had just one synagogue. Uh, The main thing that set this synagogue off from its first is location. Uh, The first, which was uncovered back in 2009, was found near the marketplace in what we might call a more industrial area. It had the ritual baths, the fish processing facilities. Uh, This recent synagogue was found about 650 feet away from the first. It's close to the town's main residential street, and its design is also slightly different. It's smaller. It's less ornate than the first one. It featured a main hall and two smaller rooms. Uh, The main hall was coated in white plaster. It featured a stone bench around the walls. One of the smaller rooms had a shelf, which they believe might have been where they stored the Torah scrolls. Now, what we don't yet know is though, why was a second synagogue needed? Uh, We do know there were religious differences in Jesus's day. We had Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and perhaps this is a case
0: where different religious groups had their own places of worship. Fascinating. Look forward to seeing that, maybe in a future visit. Well, coming up on The Land and the Book, lots of things to look forward to, including questions and answers. Charlie and I will sit down and take a look at the questions that have come in. Maybe yours is one of them. Charlie Dyer's devotional is always uh, worth hearing. Plus, a fascinating conversation up next about the expected one. Our website, as always, is thelandandthebook.org. Information there about today's guests, past guests, future programs, thelandandthebook.org. The Expected One, next on The Land and the Book. If Christmas is about anything, it's about a promise. A promised hope, a promised Messiah, a promised salvation. You might say Jesus was the expected one. Coming up on The Land and the Book, a fresh look at the expected one. And it's good to connect with you today, whether you're hearing The Land and the Book online or on air. I'm John Geiger, inviting you to think creatively with me about loving our Jewish friends and neighbors for Christ. So you really want to love your Jewish relative or neighbor or co-worker, friend, whatever. And you brought up the subject, you're nervous about it, of Yeshua as Messiah. And boom, you got shut down and in a hurry. What's your next response? What should it be? How do you how do you show the love of Jesus in that context? That's a question for Justin Crone of Chosen People Ministries. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's show understanding. Understand that, yeah, I understand that this is hard for you, and 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 I understand that this would would not be a popular decision mm-hmm. uh, for you to make. But I think the risk, I think the benefits might be worth it. Yeah. So check them out. Give them a chance. Let. Jesus speak for Jesus and, and try to not let your, your ancestors, uh, your friends, your family do that for you, but do your own study, do your own investigation and come to your own conclusion. I notice you didn't just lay over and die. You did kind of pursue the issue of Jesus uh, or, or you're suggesting that. Well, and that's because Jesus is ultimately the, the one that we want them to understand. Yes. He's the stumbling block, Despite right? their so-called explosion. Yeah and i think it's always the right thing to do as well to remind them if if you have the opportunity that jesus is one of theirs justin Prone is with chosen people ministries joining us today on the land and the book scott james serves as an elder at the church at brook hills and is the author of several books for children and families scott and his wife jamie have been married for 18 years they've got four children He's a practicing physician and researcher in the field of pediatric infectious diseases. And yes, COVID-19 has kept him pretty busy. (laughs) He partners with Focus on the Family as a member of their Physician Resource Council and also serves as a fellow for the Center for Baptist Renewal. Scott is the author of The Expected One. Welcome to The Land and the Book, Scott.
2: Thanks, John. It's so good to be with you.
0: Well, I'm intrigued with your title. It it seems to me many of us have expectations when it comes to gift-giving at Christmas or maybe receiving gifts at Christmas. But this idea of Jesus being the expected one might be somewhat lost on us. Your thoughts?
3: Yeah, the
2: concept really just sort of grew out of my hope as a dad to help my kids see that Jesus is the continuation of an age-old story. This story that God's people had been telling for generation after generation, pointing forward to that coming Messiah, uh laying down trails of thought all throughout the Old Testament that would point forward to who Jesus would be. And so, you know, as we were Celebrating Christmas, I, I kind of wanted them to not have a tunnel vision on the nativity, but to back up and really see kind of the big scope of who the expected one was intended to be. I wanted them to kind of celebrate all that Christ is on Christmas morning.
0: You know, I, I think we come to the Christmas season so often, and we see it as a holiday, and and we get the the theology of you know of God becoming flesh and all of that, but the idea that He was anticipated, that He was expected. It just doesn't seem to be uh, well grasped by many of us in the evangelical church. Your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I agree, and I think sometimes we can compartmentalize that Christmas story. Mm -hmm. And to our kids, it's kind of this surprise thing that happens out of nowhere, and it's this, you know, glorious miracle, this inbreaking into the world of God bringing salvation. And it is, in a sense, but yeah, I really want to connect it to the Old Testament story and the 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 story that God's people had been telling for generations. of, Of you know, you go back all the way to the very beginning, and right after the fall, we have this initial promise. From God that a Savior would come all the way back in Genesis three, and mm-hmm. so I want my kids to just ha- kind of grasp that that big picture and, and and so the items in the Old Testament that we highlight in the book are uh, essentially passages that don 't just point to the fact that a baby would be born right there there are some you know really well known uh, sort of nativity Christmas passages from the Old Testament that we love to quote around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. The book really goes uh, sort of takes those and then steps forward and actually shows how Jesus was also expected to be the shepherd of his people, and he was expected to be our righteousness. And God told his people ahead of time that that he would sacrifice himself on our behalf and then raise triumphantly from the grave. That's all in there ahead of time. That's all pointed to in the Old Testament. Uh, And so I think the, the more our children, the more we as adults even immerse ourselves into that story and really kind of appreciate the backdrop of redemptive history, so to Mm -hmm. speak, I think that is going to sort of enliven our Christmas morning celebrations all the more.
0: The fact that Jesus is the expected one means we've been given reasons to have expectations. Take us to a Bible passage that uniquely showcases uh, the sense of expectation folks would have had with regard to Christ's coming.
2: My mind immediately goes to Simeon. Uh, so if we're going to fast forward to after Jesus comes and his father and mother take him to the temple for his his, uh, his dedication, so to speak. And, and Simeon, the Holy Spirit leads Simeon there. This is an old Jewish man who has grown up in the tradition of looking forward to this expected Savior. And he, the Spirit leads him to see Jesus, and he just kind of breaks out into celebration. My eyes have seen the salvation of Israel. Like, finally, I can I can die now. I've, I've, I've seen what you promised you'd show me. And, and so it. I see in Simeon his kind of outburst of praise when yes. he meets the infant Jesus. Uh, I, I see that as kind of this little microcosm of the hope and anticipation that all of Israel was carrying with it. And through Israel, the hope of the entire world.
0: Dr. Scott James is a research fellow of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and serves on Focus on the Family's Physician Resource Council, a practicing physician. Scott has written The Expected One, a devotional for families. Hey, how would it make a difference in the way we see Christmas, maybe life itself, if, if we chose to ponder Jesus more as the expected one?
2: One of the main things that I think comes out of this is that it heightens our anticipation for Christ's second advent. So the more we look at his first advent, uh, his first coming, we sort of put that in the context of why he came and how he came and, and all of the beautiful backstory that comes with it. We appreciate so much more his ministry here on earth, obviously, because it's what brought us salvation. But then as he goes, he tells us, I am still the expected one. You should still look forward and expect mm-hmm. me to return. And so, a lot of Christmas for us, if we only kind of focus in on the events in and around Christmas and don't connect it to the fact that there will be a second coming, so I want to celebrate his first coming yes. and then look forward in hopeful anticipation of his second coming. Christmas is a pivotal time to help foster that. In my own heart, but also in the hearts of the, the children that I'm leading, uh, I, w- I want to point them forward to, to Christ and say, yeah. we're, we're still waiting. You know, Israel waited for so long for their Savior to come, and God kept His promise because He is faithful. And now we're in that same position. God has promised He will return. He will make all things new. And we're in this position now that Israel was in for generations, where we're looking forward in hopeful anticipation of that promise being fulfilled, and it will be. And so that's the kind of rock-solid biblical confidence I want to instill in in the hearts of my children and in my own heart.
0: Okay, so you've done a beautiful job of reminding us that this idea of expectation ain't over yet. It's it's very much on. The game is on. We do expect Jesus to return. But apart from the the future aspect of his return, what are we losing out in our celebration of Christmas when we fail to see Jesus as the expected one?
2: Part of the time when we focused in on the Nativity story as a compartmentalized story. So it, we, we have this tendency sometimes to tell Bible stories, and they seem to be—our kids can get the impression that these are kind of disconnected individual stories. And so when we don't connect the dots and show how everything lines up together and tells one bigger story, our kids can kind of miss some of the obvious yeah. connections between them. So I, I, I really do think that when we tell that nativity story and we tell about the miracle child who, showed, uh, who was born in the manger uh, that night— I really do want to connect them to the backstory, but I also want to point them forward and and say the reason we're making such a big deal about this miracle infant that was born in the manger is because he would grow up. To be our loving Savior. He would grow up to be the one who lives the perfect life we cannot live and who dies in place of us on the cross and who rises triumphantly from the grave. So, I, you know, without diluting Christmas, I, I want to broaden the scope of it and help our kids mm-hmm. understand that uh, if, if we're only celebrating the baby, we're kind of missing out on the whole reason that he came, right? Like, I, th- I really right. do think that the the manger is best celebrated when it's in the shadow of the cross. I want to connect the whole story of who Jesus is and celebrate that fully on Christmas morning.
0: Here on The Land and the Book, we're taking a fresh look at The Expected One with Scott James, a practicing physician. I, I can't help but ask a medical doctor a question about the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Uh, in comparison to what we enjoy today in the birthing world, a Christ birth seems crude at best and dangerously unsanitary at worst. What do you think?
2: I think it's this beautiful picture of how God uses the common and the unexpected to do wonderful things that we can't even comprehend. So if I think about the Lord of all creation coming into His own creation in such a way, in such a uh, low-stated way, without pretense, without pomp and circumstance, he, he came humble and lowly, as the Old Testament tells us. It just kind of reminds me that God can use even me to do marvelous things. Mm.
0: Take us to another favorite Bible passage that shows us Jesus as the expected one.
2: One of my very favorites is Isaiah twenty-five eight. It talks about how he, the coming expected one, he has swallowed up death once and for all. And it talks about how the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's a beautiful passage that reminds me that the purpose of Jesus coming was ultimately to heal our land, to heal his people, to bring his family into his kingdom. Uh, And so we live in a world, I just can't help but avoid the hard reality that we live in a world that is full of death and tears and heartache and lots Mm of painful things that are going on. Uh, This this past couple of years have really brought a lot of things to the fore, and there's a lot of suffering and heartache in this world. Uh, We, as followers of Christ, know that one of the underlying root causes of that is sin itself. Our own sin and rebellion has has sort of brought this into the world. God says, I'm not going to leave you there. God says, I am coming for you. I'm going to swallow up death forever. And we know On the other side of the cross, we know that he accomplishes that through the death of Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection. And so Isaiah 25 is one of those, I consider it an Advent passage in which we look at that and I look forward to the coming of Christ. And one of the reasons I look forward to the coming of Christ is because of this promise that he will wipe away Mm -hmm. every tear from every face. Like That is what I want to celebrate on Christmas morning.
0: I can't help but think that as a physician, you see more than your share of tears, right?
2: I do. It is uh, it is a real privilege to to walk alongside families mm-hmm. uh, as they're uh, helping mm-hmm. their children traverse some really, really difficult ground. Uh, yeah. we, we often walk through the, the valley of the shadow of death together, and that yeah. is a, a, a humbling place to
0: be. The expected one. That's our focus today on the land and the book. I'm John Gager, joined today by Dr. Scott James, a practicing physician. Hey, one of the uh, practical touches that you've thought through in creating this devotional is the fact that some of us have very young, very uh, <clears throat> active children with very short attention spans. So thank you for crafting these devotionals in a compact format.
2: Yeah, I did that on purpose for sure. Uh, It sort of grew out of family worship times in my own home, and my own kids are as rambunctious as yours and everyone else's. And and so, part of part of a good family devotional, a good family time in the Word together, is keeping it simple and engaging. I often find that I am tempted to bite off more than my kids can chew, and and I have these grand (laughs) schemes of of, uh, uh, theologically rich devotionals that are going to leave my kids floored, uh, and before I know it, they're bouncing off the walls. So, I yeah, very purposefully crafted these to be short and sweet, concise, engaging, hopefully profound. We're getting into some big concepts yeah. still, but it but it's all at a level and a brevity that is manageable for uh, even young children.
0: So, for those of us with kids at home, how can we help move the focus off of expectations with regards to gifts and onto the idea of Jesus the expected one. So our expectations become about our Savior and not our stuff.
2: I think being in the Word together as a family it has got to be the foundation point for that. Uh, this culture is not going to lead our kids toward that truth. So we as a family need to be very, very deliberate about how we spend time in God's Word and allow that to shape us and our expectations. So uh, a resource like the expected one, hopefully, is going to help families develop just natural habits and rhythms of spending a little bit of time every day in the Word together and letting that shape us. And so we'll see time and time again, we'll go back to Scripture and see what God is telling us about Himself and how we should relate to Him. And I think the season of Advent, those weeks leading up to Christmas, is a a really, really concrete time to focus in on that and let that be a touching point for a family, where even if family worship or family devotional is not not a routine part of your life all throughout the year, I would encourage it to be, but for a lot of families, you know, we're all very busy. The season of Advent, I I think, is a time where you could uh, attempt to set some realistic and simple goals in in that regard and and spend some time in the Word in a way that's going to shape your family to be expecting Christ, not the latest gift.
0: That's Dr. Scott James, who's written The Expected One. More about him and a link to his book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's back with your questions next on The Land and the Book. segment three on The Land and the Book. Welcome back. I'm John Gager with our host, Charlie Dyer. Charlie, looks like you're ready for question number one. I'm ready, John. Let's do it. These questions, by the way, come to us via email, and you can connect your question to us by sending it to at moody.edu. Dan says, can you send some links of your favorite Bible maps? What do you use? What would you encourage us to use? Thanks.
1: Yeah, uh, and let me provide three that I find very helpful, and I'll, I'll try and give them in a very quick way, but www.bible-history.com. Uh, that site focuses on Bible history with a real special emphasis on maps and images and archaeology. Now, it can be a bit confusing to work your way through the site, but they've really done a nice job in collecting materials. A uh, second option is www.openbible.info forward slash geo. Uh, This site uses Google Earth and it claims to provide the location of every identifiable place mentioned in the Bible. Now I've not gone through them all, but I do find the site fascinating. And and a third one, holylandphotos.org forward slash page dot ASP question mark page underline ID equals two. Now that's a mouthful. But that one focuses on photos, more than maps, and it's a great site to look through. But if you go to holylandphotos.org, I'm sure you can navigate to the
0: exact spot. All right, here's a question from David. Somebody asked me, was the jar of manna an Aaron's branch that budded in the Ark of the Covenant when the second temple was built after the Babylonian exile? I further wondered, did the Ark even come back from the Babylonian exile? It's mentioned again as being in heaven in Revelation. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant disappeared from history at the time of the Babylonian captivity. The last mention of the Ark in the Bible in connection with the temple is in 2 Chronicles 35, and that's where King Josiah ordered the Levites to bring it back and put it in the temple. Now, to me, the real key regarding the future of the Ark, though, is found in two other passages— the first is Ezekiel in chapters 10 and 11. In that passage, the glory of the Lord was dwelling above the ark. But in, in that passage then, Ezekiel pictures the glory of the Lord leaving the temple and eventually leaving Jerusalem itself. Now, at that point, the physical ark of the covenant was nothing more than a gold-covered box. And I believe it was taken by the Babylonians and eventually destroyed. Uh, the second passage is Jeremiah 3.16. I love it. One of the 3.16s of the Bible Uh, which predicts a time in the future when people will be back in the land. Uh, Jeremiah says at that time, the people will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and it won't come to mind, nor will they remember it. And then he says, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. And as if to fulfill his prophecy, oh, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't present in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. The Jewish historian Josephus says that in the Holy of Holies, there was nothing at all. Now, the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, that's not the same Ark. Moses constructed the tabernacle, including the Ark of the Covenant, after the pattern he was shown on Mount Sinai. Uh, The earthly tabernacle, including the Ark, are gone, but God's heavenly reality still
0: continues. Hmm. Question. Do you have any idea as to why the procedures on Yom Kippur involve two goats portraying two aspects of the Messiah's atonement for us instead of two lambs?
1: And this is one of those questions where I say, that's a great question. I wish I had a great answer to go with it. But the reality is the Bible doesn't really provide us with an answer. We do know both animals were considered acceptable for sacrifice, but we're never told why God chose to have Israel offer a lamb for Passover, but then two goats were used on the Day of Atonement. So I just don't have an answer for that one,
0: John. Fred and his family enjoy listening to The Land and the Book in Sarasota, Florida, and they say thank you for such a a good, informative program. And the question, what is your position regarding the active and passive obedience of Christ relative to our salvation?
1: Yeah, and people may not be aware of those two phrases, but I'll, so I'll try and explain it as I go along. Uh, but people generally refer to Christ's active obedience as his complete and perfect submission to all of God's laws and commands. And I do see that taught in places like Matthew five seventeen. You know, there Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Mm. Now, In the larger context, Jesus was showing what true obedience to God's commands looked like and how the religious leaders had fallen short. Now, in contrast to them, Jesus demonstrated an active obedience in submitting to the Lord and his word in all areas. Uh, Jesus also demonstrated what's often called passive obedience in the sense of submitting to the Jewish and Roman authorities without resistance during his arrest and trial and crucifixion. Now, he did oppose religious authorities when he cleansed the temple at the beginning and end of his ministry, but in other places we see this passive obedience, and it's what I think Paul describes in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. He said, Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So I see both aspects of Christ's submission as really central to our salvation. By demonstrating active obedience, Jesus demonstrated that he was the lamb of God without spot or blemish. And by submitting to the governing authorities, he fulfilled the prophecies of the suffering servant in places like Isaiah 53. You know, it said he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. So in both active and passive senses, Jesus was the obedient one.
0: It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. This is segment three, where we always welcome your questions about the Bible. You've got a question? We're happy to entertain an answer here on the program. Here's Lynn's question. She takes us to Isaiah 6, verses 11 and 12, where the prophet asks the Lord, how long before the people pay attention to the message? And God answers, quote, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses, are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Her question, Are there indications of how many times this judgment was to happen to the land?
1: Yeah, I see the main fulfillment of that passage being the Assyrian invasion of Judah in 701 BC. You know, Isaiah described it this way in Isaiah 36.1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Sennacherib himself left a record of the invasion, and he said he besieged and captured 46 strong fortified cities along with many smaller towns, and he claims to have taken and plundered 200,150 people. Now, I think this is what God meant when he said the cities would lie ruined with the people taken away. In essence, God was telling Isaiah that from a human perspective, Isaiah's ministry would just be ineffective. No one would pay attention to him, or no spiritual revival would happen for nearly 39 years. From the year King Uzziah died, that was 740 B.C. when Isaiah was called, until the year of Assyria's invasion, 701 B.C. Now, Hezekiah did institute religious reforms early in his reign, but evidently those reforms didn't grip the hearts of the people. Though the passage was at least partially fulfilled in that 701 B.C. Assyrian invasion, I think it could also look beyond that and point toward the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. In spite of the Assyrian devastation of the land and God's miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem, the people still didn't truly repent. As soon as Hezekiah died, they went back to their wicked ways. And they continued that way until 586 B.C. when Judah fell to Babylon. There was a brief revival under Josiah, but it really didn't grip the hearts of the people. And as a result, in 586, the land was completely ruined, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the Lord did send everyone far away.
0: Well, speaking of destroyed cities, how many times has Jerusalem been overtaken by other nations? Besides the Babylonians and the Romans, was Jerusalem leveled or destroyed as severely by any other nation? Yeah, I'd say the only two
1: times when Jerusalem was leveled were those two times, the Babylonians and then the Romans. Uh, the city did fall over history to the Muslims and the Crusaders and the Jordanians and the Israelis, but in none of those was the city itself wiped out. The only two events that come to my mind are the destruction in 586 B.C. and then again the one in 70
0: A.D. Why don't we follow the food rules now that were given in Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Any thoughts? Um,
1: Well, the Old Testament regulations on clean and unclean animals were given specifically to Israel. Following Christ's resurrection, God began a, a new work among the Gentiles, and he brought Jews and Gentiles into the body of Christ. And this in no way eliminated God's promises to the Jewish people. But with the beginning of the church age in Acts 2, there was a definite change in this age. Uh, In fact, the question of whether or not Gentiles needed to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses was actually the focus of the very first church council in Acts chapter 15. Now, following the discussion, which included Peter and Paul and Jesus' half-brother, James, the early church decided that Gentiles did not have to obey those ceremonial laws of Moses. Instead, it said, We should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So believers today don't need to follow the food regulations of the Old Testament or observe the Sabbath regulations because they have been replaced in this age by these other more general
0: commands for the church. We've covered a lot of ground, but you can hear it all again at thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's devotional next. It's great to have your company today on The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who's about to share with us a great perspective in a devotional that he's titled Living in Uncertain Times. Charlie, I suspect that uh, over the millennia, most people have felt that uh, to some extent they feel like they're living in uncertain times. I think all people have lived in uncertain times.
1: I think the media today kind of heightens that sense of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. But indeed, uh, even Jesus said, We don't know what tomorrow holds. A fresh
0: perspective coming up in Charlie's devotional. You don't want to miss it. We're going to get right to it after we share with you this Holy Land experience. Listen to this.
3: I'm Mynhez. And I think what has overwhelmed me has been being in the Judean wilderness. I will never, ever look at the Psalms again where David says, My God who is my rock, my fortress, my stronghold. I'll never look at that the same again. It, is, it just comes to life. It is overwhelming to think of David wandering through that wilderness and trusting God and realizing that God was going to deliver him. And also thinking about Naomi and Ruth coming from Moab across the Dead Sea and just what they had to overcome to go through that wilderness, those mountains to get to Bethlehem. And thinking about that older Jewish woman who longed for her home so much, leading the younger Gentile woman. And I just think that is what you intended, God, for the Jews to lead the Gentiles to the light of who you are. And I'll never look at that the same again when I read the book of Ruth.
0: Well, we certainly live in changing times, uncertain times, some would say, I'm looking forward to what you've got to share with us today, Charlie. Thanks, John. Is the economy getting ready to take off
1: or crash? Should I be buying stock or stocking up on canned beans and bottled water? Since life is so uncertain, are the decisions I'm making right now wise or foolish? Look online and you'll see no shortage of self-professed experts who will tell you what's really going to happen. They know the future of the economy, the Middle East, The problem is, their predictions are all over the map. They can't all be right. In fact, these so-called experts seem to be wrong more often than not. And if they don't know what the future holds, how can we possibly get it right? To find an answer, we're visiting one of the wealthiest men who's ever lived, with an international reputation for shrewd investing. No, we're not heading to Omaha to visit with Warren Buffett, Our journey takes us to the city of Eilat, the port city tucked between the azure waters of the Red Sea and the rugged mountains straddling the border between Israel and Egypt. Oh, and our trip also takes us back in time three thousand years. And here we are, standing beside a stone dock, jutting into the Red Sea. Just offshore, a fleet of new wooden ships are bobbing at anchor. They're sitting low in the water, a clear sign they're loaded with cargo. Two more ships are moored to the dock as a group of laborers wrestle large pottery jars onto the deck and into the hold. The largest jars are filled with wheat, while the smaller jars are labeled shemin, olive oil. Soon these two ships will be fully loaded as well, and the fleet will begin its long, perilous journey toward the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. And there, watching the inaugural launch of this new fleet of ships, is none other than the man we're here to see. King Solomon himself. He spots us and walks over to greet us and welcome us to his new project. Your Majesty, we've come from the future, but it's a time of great fear and uncertainty. For some, the lack of stability is paralyzing. We're here to ask you for wisdom. What's the best course of action in uncertain days? Solomon smiles and points to the fleet of new ships out in the water. Uncertainty? Do you realize how fraught with danger this new venture is? Even with the expertise of the King of Tyre, who supplied the ships and the captains, the risks involved in this undertaking are enormous. Storms, uncharted waters, fragile boats filled with a cargo that could shift in heavy seas, taking the cargo and crew to the bottom in a matter of minutes. This is a venture fraught with fear and uncertainty. So how do you handle the pressure? What keeps you from becoming so paralyzed with fear you're afraid to do anything? Solomon smiles and walks us over to a nearby tent erected to provide shade from the blazing sun. Once inside, he motions for us to take a seat on the beautifully woven carpets covering the floor. Grabbing a nearby scroll, Solomon rolls it almost to the end and then takes his seat on the portable throne that's traveled with him from Jerusalem. I discovered four principles that help me plot the way forward in very perilous times. The first principle is this, be willing to take risks. And then he reads from the scroll, Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Seeing our quizzical expression, Solomon explains, Obviously, I'm not talking about throwing bread out into the water to feed the ducks or the fish. The bread symbolizes what I've earned or grown or made or saved. See those ships out in the sea? They're filled with the bread I've been able to save, the grain and the oil. But instead of hoarding it, I'm throwing it out onto the water in a rather bold venture. Yes, there's a possibility of failure, but there's also an opportunity for great reward. I'm sending food to a region where food is scarce and gold is plentiful. But that leads to my second principle, diversify. And again, he reads from the scroll, divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. In uncertain times, don't, uh, what's the expression you use? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Accept risk, but know that some ventures will fail. So spread out that risk. Some might fail, but others will succeed. Solomon moves quickly to the next point, skipping to the bottom of the column in his scroll. My third principle is work hard. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Is it more likely to rain immediately after planting and wash away your seed if you sow early in the morning or late in the afternoon. You don't know, so do both. Yes, one might prove to be unsuccessful, but it's better to work hard and risk one small failure than to do nothing as you wait for all risk to disappear and guarantee that nothing is accomplished. Take risks, diversify, and work hard. Three important principles, but there's one final principle, the one I didn't read before and Solomon's finger goes back to the spot in the scroll he had skipped over. This principle is the most important. Trust God. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind, and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. You need to recognize that you are not in control, but that God is. All of life's uncertain. You don't know when it will rain or how a tree will fall or where exactly a hurricane or a tornado will strike, but God does. You can take some steps that will help account for life's uncertainties, but ultimately— Life is about learning to trust God. He knows what tomorrow holds, and he cares for you. As Solomon rolls up the scroll, we say goodbye and head out into the hot afternoon sun. The final jars have been stowed below deck, and the last two ships throw off the lines, mooring them to the dock. In just a few minutes, they'll join the other ships on their uncertain journey, a journey much like our journey through life, filled with unknown opportunity and danger just over the horizon. But we're breathing just a little easier as we think back on Solomon's wise words. How do we live in an uncertain world? Be willing to take risks, diversify, work hard, and trust God for those things that are beyond our control.
0: Not bad advice at all. Boy, that is very solid advice. Thanks, Charlie. Tony, a listener from Indianapolis, Indiana, emailed us recently, he says, "I really enjoy your radio program, The Land and the Book. Despite the heaviness of many of the topics you cover, I never feel down while listening. You always keep a, a lighthearted perspective on things, for which I'm appreciative." Well, Tony, we appreciate that email and uh, love to hear from you as well. You can connect with us at The Land and the Book at moody.edu. The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. And while you're in the writing mood, would you mind writing a quick email or postcard to the management at this station and let them know you appreciate the land and the book? Thanks for doing that. I'm John Gager for the team saying thanks so much for listening to our Land in the Book program. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.